0: On this episode of This Week in Linux, we check out some new releases from Mate, Firefox, OpenShot, KDE Falcon, Samba, Crossover, and more, including a beta release from Zorn OS. We'll also discuss the big gaming news from Google, for the Google Stadia cloud gaming platform, and then we'll take a look at the latest updates related to the EU Copyright Directive. Later in the show, we'll discuss some more Linux gaming news with an update for the Atari VCS. And a GameCube controllers development update, as well as some news from Epic Games, Valve, and GOG.com. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tanel with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for two months for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co/tux. That's do.co. Slash tux. You can use that $100 credit to try out a bunch of their small droplets or even some of their big beast droplets. If you want, there's even the 16 gig RAM 6 virtual CPU droplet that has 6 terabytes of transfer. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $100 credit by going to do.co tux or do.co tux. And thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week in Linux. Up first in the show this week is the release of Mate 1.22. Mate is a desktop environment, if you're not aware, and it is one of the popular desktop environments. The release for 1.22 adds a lot of bug fixes and patches, and also some nice shiny new features. So, uh, first of all, they got the Mate panel has improved Wayland support. They have revamped the Mate display widget for improved monitor control. They've upgraded the Metacity themes, the Metacity theme handling. I'm not really sure if it's Metacity or Metacity, so say both of them, and one of them's right. Uh, also, there's new programs ported to Python 3, including i of Mate, Python Kaja plugin libraries, and Mate menus library. i of Mate has a reworked sidebar, so it has a lot more features in it. And in addition to all this, they've improved the stability and fixed some memory leaks. As well as removed some deprecated code and updated the documentation for the uh, the desktop environment. So this is a really cool thing, and Mate is probably one of my favorite DEs. It has a lot of customizations, and especially depending on the distro you use, like Ubuntu Mate has the Mate Interface Switcher, which is really slick. And, uh, if you, it allows you to choose whatever layout you want with just like choosing a drop-down option. So if you choose Redmond, it'll look like a windows layout. If you choose Cupertino, it'll look like a Mac layout and a bunch of other options as well. It's a very cool concept. And uh, a lot of DEs are also kind of like taking the idea and making their, um, their own version. So that's pretty cool too. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about Mate 1.22, I'll have a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is the cloud gaming platform from Google called Google Stadia. And Google Stadia is a platform for game streaming so that you could use any really any browser device or whatever to play a game that is actually rendered on the Google servers. And this is an interesting thing because this has a lot of potential to change a lot of the way that people treat Linux in the sense that as casual gamers could transition from... Using um, games as a as an excuse not to you know just switch over to Linux, they'd be able to play essentially any game, but using the servers from Google Stadia. So there's a lot of potential for people transitioning because of this because the only there's a lot of times people would say that the only reason they don't use Linux is because of gaming. and this could change that. Now, of course, there are some negatives to that because Google is Google. And they're uh, not very good for privacy and um, all that kind of stuff. So, right. But functionally and technologically speaking, this is a pretty cool system. It's pretty cool. And it's really interesting. So the the streaming platform is going to be based on Linux. And it's going to have like the Linux will be the server that runs everything. And they'll be using Vulkan to render all the graphics. Now, this has a lot of potential to also benefit Linux in some ways, maybe, not guaranteed, but maybe in that Vulkan is also the requirement for Steam Play and Proton to work. So if a developer makes their game work with Vulkan for the streaming platform, it might be possible to easily or at least somewhat reasonably port the game to at least support through um, Steam Play and Proton via the Vulkan implementation. So there's a lot of potential there, and overall this does seem really interesting. But the features that they are promising to include are 4K, 60, uh, 60 frames per second with HDR support, or high dynamic, high dynamic range support. They also plan to add 8K to 120 frames per second in the future. Uh, multiplayer online and in the same room will be possible. Uh, server-based acceleration using AMD GPUs at 10.7 teraflops, which is crazy because between PlayStation and Xbox, the highest you can get for those is like 6 teraflops. Uh, Game streaming via YouTube and community gaming. There's even something that's really interesting because like they said there's going to be integration with YouTube and that there would be a play now button next to someone streaming a game that you could click the button and then start playing with them from the YouTube page. Very interesting. No idea how that's going to work, but it does seem like a pretty powerful feature if this were to to be done. So overall, there are quite a few things that... This has potential to change things, and I hope that it that, that the my theory about the Vulcan support will be you know come to fruition because if there's if they make the development for the servers in the back end they could make it easy to work on the native or not native but Steam Play Proton support on the desktop for Linux. So there is potential for it to, for them to accidentally be beneficial to the desktop for Linux. Um, we'll see when it comes out, but. There's going to be some issues with a lot of people having uh, concerns about Google privacy because this is going to have like Google Home Assistant built into it. So you can pretty much guarantee that this is going to be a problem as far as like they will be using the data that you use when you play the games and everything. And also, um, there's going to be like a pretty expensive controller. Not that expensive when you compare how much you save on games, but. Uh, pretty expensive controller. Well, we don't really know how much you're gonna co- it's going to cost to do the streaming service. They might just do it in a subscription model where you only pay a certain amount like Netflix, or they might do it in a sense where you pay a smaller fee plus a subscription model to each for each game. Um, there, there could be, th- we don't know, because it's, it's just currently announced as this is going to happen. We don't really have any real details. But there is something that's also interesting is that the controller that comes with Google Stadia would have its own Wi-Fi connection to it, so you instead of having a controller that connects to your uh, computer or your TV or whatever, and then sends to the cloud to get the to do the input, that, that could create some latency. So they're, what they're doing is making the the there's a Wi-Fi connection built into the controller itself, so it goes directly to the uh, servers for the latency to improve latency. So that's overall an interesting structure. So I will probably try it out. As far as like, you know, it'll be for the the, the channel for the show. It, it it'd be it wouldn't be for like because I want to play the games. I mean, it's just it's just for content. It's just for you, basically. That's that's you believe that? Do you believe that? Anyway, so if you'd like to learn more about Google Stadia, I'll have a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release from Firefox, and that's Firefox 66. Now, this has a lot of improvements to the overall browser experience, many things that are great and a few nice uh, improvements as well. So first, we're going to talk about just the small improvements like the improved search experience by being able to perform a search on tabs that you have open and easier search in private windows via a redesigned tab structure. Uh, you also have, get smoother scrolling and better performance out of this version. One of the performance enhancements was making extensions store their setting in a Firefox database rather than individual JSON files. That is a nice improvement. Along with this, there are several fixes issued for like causes for some crashing and freezing issues. Um, they say that it's based on like when downloading files for Linux users, but I've never had that problem, so I don't know if that's common or not. Uh, but it was big enough for them to put in their uh, change log notes, but absolutely. Uh, well, there's two. Okay, one more is it, it, it's more. It's got better support for CSDS. Or so, for example, if you're using uh, GNOME or something else that use CSDS, it'll hide the title bar to have a more cleaner appearance inside of certain DEs that use CSDS like that. So it looks nicer inside of those types of desktop environments. Now, the number one thing. The best thing of this release is the ability to block autoplaying sounds, whether that is music like stupid background music or whether that is videos that have autoplay active and the most irritating possible way of advertising or whatever you're doing it on your website. The worst thing you could possibly do to be the most annoying on a website is autoplaying audio. And this new feature allows you to block it automatically you just uh, if you already have Firefox, I think Firefox will automatically have it installed if you, you just install it but if you already have it previously installed for your settings you go into your preferences and then you can uh, check a box to activate it and it is very nice I absolutely hate that in fact there are some websites that use autoplay videos for no reason at all so ZDNet for example This site has automatic playing videos that are completely unrelated to the article you are reading. It is absolutely worthless. It is probably there just to irritate you because that's the only thing I can think of why it's there. It has no value in any way whatsoever. Go to any article on ZDNet and the video that is playing at the top of the article has no valid reason to be there. But now we can automatically block those sounds from playing because well, they're terrible so thank you very much Firefox for doing so and keep making the best browser on Linux because it has the best privacy and security benefits as well as it is completely open source, so thank you Mozilla for making Firefox and keep making it better, so if you'd like to learn more about Firefox and this latest version of 66, I'll have a link in the show notes up next in the show is another browser that is also great and open source, and that is Falcon from KDE, and that is the release is three point one. This is the first release in about a year or so, and they've added a nice some nice features, including some big features like some new plugin structure. But first, let's talk about they've added a new uh, plugin called uh, Middle Click Loader, uh, which I'm pretty sure is able to load websites with a middle click pasting function. I'm not sure if that's exactly right because they didn't really specify. How it is like in their sh- in their uh, change log? They didn't really specify exactly what it was doing, but I think that's what it is. Uh, they also added page sharing for KDE frameworks integration plugin, which is really cool. And they've also added some uh, a new registering uh, custom protocol handlers, which allows you to uh, specify what applications should use a certain protocol. So, for example, if you had apt colon slash slash in your browser link, it could open a um, a some kind of desktop software uh, or some kind of software store to load that and start installing something. Uh, So that's a possibility now. They've also added uh, support for writing plugins in QML so that you can have a nice cleaner way of building plugins for Falcon, which is nice to see. So if you'd like to learn more about KDE Falcon, um, you have a link to the latest release of 3.1 as well as the front page for the browser in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of 2.4.4 for OpenShot. OpenShot is a video editor, and this latest release, there's people saying that it's the best version yet, and it contains a lot of performance and stability enhancements, which is very nice because the, one of the biggest complaints for a while for OpenShot is its stability. So I'm glad to see that they're you know, focusing on that. Uh, there's also a lot of interesting features that are, becoming, are being incl- improved or included in this latest release, so, for example, they've had better improvement for the keyframe sc- uh, scaling. So now when you switch frame rates, the frames and animations will scale properly, which is very uh, good potential, depending on like doing, um, like doing slow motion effects. So speed ramping is what it's called in the editing world, where you take some content that you record with a lot of frames over a, like a, like a short period of time. That way you can have like this fake slow motion sort of effect. And uh, then you can change use the speed ramping to change that and make it do um, some slow motion effects essentially. So you like you record in 120 frames and then play it back in 60 frames for example. Then there's also some other features that it added where it has improvement performance improvements for the timeline and preview section. They've also improved SVG rendering which is really good because graphics with it, uh, SVG makes it possible to scale really well because you know, you know basically SVG can scale infinitely because it's it's just math it's not actually like pixels or anything so it has a lot better layout uh, potential for graphics and video using SVG. They've also done something that's really interesting which is a relative uh, path structure so that allows you to have a essentially a completely portable project so when you create a, a project and you put some files and clips into the project, it will use a full path to those files. But when you save it, they say that essentially it essentially uses magic to turn those uh, full paths into relative paths so that it will detect it and be able to change to the full path whenever you make a new uh, you like, you port it to another computer, you put it on another drive or whatever, it would be able to find the files. I assume it does a scan when you first load the project again, but I don't know if that's the case. But they, they just say magic, so your, your guess is as good as mine in that case. Uh, but there's a lot of interesting things about uh, the latest version of OpenShot, and I am glad that they are still working on it because it has a lot of potential. Uh, but... Uh, OpenShot is more of a beginner video editor, so if you are looking for an editor that is uh, very simple to use and it's beginner friendly so you can get started without a ton of uh, barrier to start, like a a learning curve, then OpenShot is probably one of the better options because it's kind of like an open source Windows Movie Maker or iMovie sort of thing. It's, It's fairly easy to get started and to learn how to move the uh, the clips around and the trim and cut and all that stuff, but it, it is limited in certain ways where uh, Kaden Live would uh, provide some more powerful features and some more powerful effects and stuff like that. So it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for a production ready editor, then Caden Live is probably the better option. But if you're looking if you're just start getting started with video editing or you just want to do some like home videos and uh, some uh, small edits and stuff like that, OpenShot is a great option for that. So if you'd like to learn more, I'll have a link to the latest release blog post on the OpenShot website in the show notes below. Up next in the show is Zorin OS 15 Beta. And this is the beta release for the next version of Zorin OS, which is coming out, we don't know exactly how soon, but fairly soon. It'll be based on 1804.2 the latest LTS version of Ubuntu. Their previous version of Zorin OS 14 is based on 16.04, so it makes sense that they're going to be releasing pretty soon for this next version. And this next version has a lot of interesting work done uh, for their, their user experience. So first of all, they have a new night mode structure, so that you can have um, like dark themes at night, and they've also made it where it automatically adjusts based on the time of the day. So during the day, it's uh, bright light or bright themes or basically um, having the blue light on and then dimming some of that blue light in the uh, at the nighttime, as well as making it to a dark theme at that point, too. So it's an interesting uh, approach, a very nice uh, usability benefit for some people. They've also added the ability to connect to Android devices so you can sync notifications, share files, and send text messages between devices. This might sound familiar, and that is because it is using KDE Connect in order to accomplish this. So they're in a combination of KDE Connect and GS Connect, because if you're not aware, Zorn OS's DE is using a very heavily modified version of GNOME. So they have a bunch of their own extensions and their own modifications to it, but it's essentially underneath GNOME. So um, this is an interesting approach because they also are rebranding all of the different features of the Connect structure. So KDE Connect is, technically they're still using, but they also made their own branding version called Zorin Connect, which is uh, what they suggest to install to integrate with their system. Now you could, in theory, still be able to use KDE Connect if you wanted to, and it would still all work, but they have their own branding so that they can have a cohesive approach to it. They're also going to have Flatpak support in this release, so they've added it to uh, their the distro repo as far as like having access to install them through the software center that comes with Zorin, so it makes it a lot easier to use it. They also uh, already use uh, Snaps. They've had Snap support for a very long time, so they're going to have now support for easily getting Flatpaks and Snaps as well as the normal distro repo packages. Uh, They've also done some interesting things with this new layout that they have called the touch layout, where you have the basic uh, normal desktop layout, but also if you put it on a tablet or some kind of touch interface, you can use this new layout, which gives you the ability to have a panel at the bottom that allows you to switch between apps. You also get the app grid menu and access system controls and indicators really easily and all in the same interface. So it's uh, also multi-touch gestures to make it even easier to navigate the desktop so you have a four-finger swipe up or down to switch between workspaces and three-finger pinch reveal for the activities overview so if you're running over all the, that shows all your running apps and workspaces so in GNOME, if you just hit the super key on your keyboard it will give you the overview and in this adds an extra thing so you do uh... the three-finger pinch effect and it will give you the work the overview as well really interesting approach and I do think that the Zorn makes a lot of really um, innovative concepts of how they're going to do stuff and they do and they, they do put a lot of effort in their branding, which is nice. Uh, the latest versions of their system also has some nice theming. They used to have some, um, some interesting theming that was kind of Windows related. and this is more um, like this is Windows 10 familiarity design, but also a much more clean approach. Than their previous ones so this is a a distro that I'm looking forward to trying out Uh, it has some potential and if you are interested in trying it out yourself the beta is available right now we don't know exactly when the full release is going to happen but if you are wanting to check out the beta I have a link to it in the show notes up next in the show is an update on the EU copyright directive So the EU Copyright Directive is probably something you've heard of on many places now. It's been uh, included on a lot of YouTube YouTube videos and some other podcasts, and even on this show before, where it's talking about the European Parliament trying to vote a new copyright directive, which essentially will break the Internet because they don't understand how the Internet works. Now, the latest news about this is that they've had some revisions to it, and they've changed a little bit of stuff which does create some improvements, but overall is still terrible. So if you want to learn more about this, there's Article 17, Article 13, and Article 11, I think. Uh, still 11, I'm pretty sure it's still uh, still involved, but 13 and 17 for sure. That essentially break the internet because they don't know how it works. But anyway, so the, the, the final vote to whether the Parliament will pass it or not is going to be done on this next Tuesday, uh, well this t- coming Tuesday, March 26th. So, if you are in Europe and you haven't contacted your MEP, you definitely need to do that because it is very important that they don't break stuff. So, essentially, what it means is that uh, in certain cases, they're trying to pass a requirement so that you, if, you, if you have someone, if you provide a platform, if you provide a, a, a website, and someone was to upload software or, or not software, but upload content of any kind to your servers, then you are responsible for that content being not violating copyright, which means you'd have to set up a filter in order to compensate for whatever's uploaded. And it'd have to scan before it was ever pushed public. And essentially what it says is that um, companies like YouTube and whatever, in theory, could afford to do that because they're multi-billion dollar companies. But a a small website that has a forum, for example, or whatever would n- have no way of doing that because of how complicated it and how much effort that would be in order to filter all the content that's uploaded. It's just crazy. It's an absolutely ridiculous idea that they're putting forward, and hopefully it does get shut down, but it needs more MEPs to shut it down. I think right now there's 120-something MEPs that have, have um, pledged to vote against it, and they need like 150 to make sure it doesn't happen. So if you want to, there's a website to go to called Pledge. 2019.eu that will find, show you the uh, MEPs that you, for your, your area or whatever that you can contact and how to contact them to vote against it. You can also go to saveyourinternet.eu for more information about this. But what's interesting is the latest updates for this is that they've made some tweaks and they've changed it so that there's a few exceptions for small and startup businesses. So the idea was um, big companies... Could take could handle it or take the the issue, but they wouldn't want to anyway because of how much ridiculous amount of work it would require. But um, they were saying that they were going to try these, add these exceptions so small businesses wouldn't be affected. However, the exceptions are also dumb and also don't fix anything. So there are three uh, reasons or three conditions that if they're if they they all have to be met. In order for something to be exempt, so these three is have an annual turnover of under ten million euros. That is possible for a small business. Attract less than five million unique visitors per month. Also possible, and then also be under three years old. What? That's a you can't keep your you you can't you can't be a small business. If your time, your your exemption is based on time, what if you stay a small business forever? You still, after three years, are no longer exempt by this this weird exception, and therefore you start having to deal with the content filters. It's just, if you're in Europe, uh, please contact your MEP because, yeah. Up next in the show is the latest release of Samba, which is 4.10. Samba, if you're not aware, is an open source re-implementation of SMB or CIFS protocol. It is basically a file sharing or file and print sharing st- structure for Microsoft Windows systems. So if you, for example, have a you know a computer, uh, you know someone in your household or someone you want to share uh, content with and they use Windows, Uh, Samba allows you to easily transition from, you know, to share those networks connections uh, without having to, you know, set up some kind of VM or whatever. Samba allows you to get files back and forth between Linux and Windows. Uh, If for some reason you should just make them use Linux, that's the best option, really. But uh, 4.10 is the first version with full support for Python 3. Uh, Python 2 also remains supported, but this is expected to be the last release of Samba. That will be supporting Python uh, 2 in full. Uh, Samba 4.10 also supports the pre-fork process model improvements. The pre-forked net login process, the pre-fork model now restarts failed processes and other process models improvements as well. So there's lots of cool things that are coming with this version. So uh, it makes it a lot easier to uh, use the group policy objects, offline domain backups, Uh, group membership statistics, JSON logging enhancements, and many more. So if you have not used Samba before and you have a a need to connect to a Windows system uh, through the network, Samba is a good option to check out. If you don't have a need to use Windows, then you can check out NFS, which is kind of a similar thing, network file system. Uh, It's basically sharing files between Linux systems, and it works really nicely too. So anyway, the latest version uh, 4.10 of Samba. We'll have a link in the show notes. So up next in the show is the latest release of Crossover, which is 18.5. Crossover, this latest version, is based on Wine 4.0, but it also pulls in F-Audio. So if you're not aware, Crossover is a commercial software of Wine, essentially. it takes They have a lot of development into Wine itself, but they also have a commercial branch which you can use to support Wine or just to get better support because Wine takes a while to release new versions because they want to—they have a ton of testing and Crossover is a way to uh, get access to some of the stuff before it gets into the latest version of Wine. So in this version of uh, Crossover, they've upgraded to 4.0 of Wine, like I said, but they also ship with some fixes to address some problems with using Microsoft Office 2010. It now supports the latest version of Microsoft Office 365, which I'm not really sure what that is because 365 is supposed to be the online version, so I don't know. But uh, there's also some preliminary support uh, for Linux via uh, with uh, Microsoft OneNote 2016. So on top of that, there's also support to that for the upstream, uh, in, in t- on top of upstream wine, they also pulled in the most recent version of uh, F-Audio patches for a better X-Audio 2 implementation, which we're going to get talk we're going to talk about the uh, that software the F audio or the developer of F audio anyway in a later topic coming up. But this is really cool if you wanted to learn more about crossover, it's a really good option to try Microsoft Office on Linux if you need to do that for some reason. So, uh, I'll have a link to the latest version uh, in the or the, the forum announcement of the latest version in the show notes. Up next in the show is some Bad news, but also a slight bit of good news at the end. but uh, first of all, the Google, uh, Google has announced a new permission policy for SMS and calls. So you're not aware what SMS it means text messaging. Uh, and it, unfortunately, it's crippling some apps. So the developers have been forced to remove features or in some cases change the fundamental nature of their applications in a variety of different ways. Uh, for example, Uh, BlackBerry's Hub is an email client which also aggregates notifications from a variety of different apps and presents them in a chronological timeline. This application has lost the ability to include calls and texts in that timeline. So that's for people who use that system, that's not very helpful. But two other things, for example, Tasker is the most used automation app uh, on Android and it had some problems with having the ability to use SMS as well. However, it was given an, ex- an ex- exemption um, or an exception for their system. So it, it, that's kind of some good news, but, you know, whatever. Unfortunately, the anti-theft security app Cerberus, which is used to used to issue remote control commands via to the device via SMS. So, for example, if your phone was taken and they didn't have the internet on, you couldn't log into the phone remotely and then... You know, clean it out. However, you could send a text message to the phone to use Cerberus to uh, wipe the phone that way, which is another way, a good way of getting away from, as long as they have some kind of connection active, you'd be able to do it. However, that has been removed from Cerberus uh, because uh, Google rejected the request for the permissions and they said it, it basically kills one of the, uh, the heads of Cerberus. The SMS commands to recover or uh, you know fix a, f- a stolen phone, which is not connected to the internet, and um, unfortunately they've said that they're not really going to try to fix it because they're just going to remove the feature, which is not a solution. But I mean it's not a good solution, but it's like the one they the only one they had, so that's unfortunate. And another thing that was hit by this problem, something that's even more directly connected to the Linux. Uh, the desktop and Linux ex- ecosystem is KDE Connect was hit and were no longer to be allowed in the Play Store because of these SMS and call... St- or basically, SMS uh, uh, features inside of the thing where you could respond to text messages through the KDE Connect uh, interface and through the, the protocol. So they took it... They basically blocked it out of the Play Store and thankfully... It has been somehow fixed. I don't really know how they got it. I think they just got an exception because the features are still available in KD Connect, but I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I think it was an exception. So expect to see more of this kind of stuff of applications just suddenly not being there or suddenly breaking certain functionality because Google decided to change the policies for everything. And uh, yeah, there you go. So just more of a warning rather than anything, but it is nice that KDE Connect was able to solve it, Um, so yeah. If you haven't ever tried KDE Connect, you absolutely should because it is awesome, and it does not require you to use KDE Plasma in order to uh, uh, benefit from the features. You can use KDE Connect with any DE through App Indicators or GS Connect or whatever, so... Definitely check it out if you have it because it is awesome. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this weird, horrible permission policy that Google added to Android, I'll have a link to the Android Police website in the show notes below. Next in the show is uh, some gaming news. We have a, actually quite a bit of Linux gaming in addition to this, the Google Stadia we already covered. We have a lot more. So first up, we're going to talk about the Atari VCS has been delayed for late 2019. They haven't really said exactly when, but it has been delayed. Now the reason to delay it is actually pretty good because they have decided to upgrade the Bristol Ridge CPU to use a AMD 14 nanometer AMD Ryzen with Radeon Vega graphics and two Zen CPU cores. So they're actually going to upgrade the power of the of the system to a lot you know a lot more appealing because it was kind of underpowered when they first announced it. So I was like, eh, I don't really care. But now it has a lot more potential with that new upgraded hardware. However, we don't know exactly when it's going to come out, and technically the end of 2019 doesn't relate to when the the product will be available to purchase. That is when the pre-orders on the Indiegogo campaign will ship. So, there's that. There have also been some doubters about this device, and there are many reasons to be be a doubter, because they were using Kickstarter, which is kind of weird, why would Atari be doing that? And it's because it's not really technically made by Atari. It's made by a third-party company that has a deal to use the Atari concept, the Atari branding, and everything. So it, it kind of makes sense that people why people are kind of sketchy about it. But I do think that this is this news is getting more powerful hardware would be great because we already know that AMD will have quality driver support. So getting the drivers, the quality drivers, and quality hardware inside of this has potential to make it much better. It's also been stated by the team, the, the Atari VCS team, that it will be able to run a full Linux distro as well as just being a console. And there's also been a lot of open source aspects to the system that they're going to be putting into the, into the, the console. So there's a lot of possibilities that this has. So I'm interested to see what happens, um, but I don't know when it's going to be available if, you're not, if you didn't pre-order. Uh, so probably sometime early next year. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about the Atari VCS, uh, I'll have a link to the Indiegogo campaign and this latest blog post in the show notes. Up next in the show is the announcement for the Epic Online Services from Epic Games. Now, this is a lot lot of features that they're going to be launching um, that they've basically been working on with Fortnite. So, there's a lot of support options they're going to be having. They're going to offer support for parties. An in game overlay, matchmaking, player reports, achievements, leaderboard, stats, and more. But right now it's only offering game analytics, well, you know, telemetry about players, and a support ticket system, as the rest are just labeled as coming soon. So this is for developers to implement in their games to have benefits of having a service and platform that makes them be able to be to use these different features without having to implement it themselves in their own server structure. And a lot of developers already use Unreal Engine, like uh, including my favorite game, Rocket League, and some other ones, but it's also not supported just on Unreal. You can also have support on Unity and even some other game engines, as well as other stores. So this is not exclusive, technically, so they're going to have support for if you ha- if you put a game in Steam, you would still be able to use these services. Um, through whatever the structure of Epic's online services is built. So this is cool because it's going to have uh, support for Linux on day one. So they they announced it that it's going to have Windows, Mac, and Linux support at launch, which is nice. I am happy to see that. However, I don't like Epic because Epic's CEO has repeatedly bashed Linux over the years. So it's not surprising that the store doesn't support Linux. And it is kind of surprising that it does that the online Epic online services will be supporting Linux on day one. That is kind of surprising. But at the same time, the this is overall a good thing for Linux gamers. Because developers will probably at least some of them will want to use these services. And it will be able to deploy the services for in these games for Linux. So it wouldn't add an extra barrier that sometimes might happen by not supporting the platform. So at least it is good that they are supporting the platform in this case because it won't hurt um, our operating system for them doing so or the appeal of developers to use the operating system or support the operating system by doing so. So it is good that they did that. Uh, But it's still epic and it's still like an issue with them not supporting Linux for the store and it's not even, I mean, they, they just released they recently released their roadmap, which has like a time frame between 30 days and six months. And also they have another section that says to be determined. And Linux support is not even listed anywhere, not even in the TBD section. So another issue is that uh, it's not really good how Epic is handling user data. So for example, there was a, a frequently asked questions on the uh, website for the Epic online services says, what will Epic do with the data from the game? Well, they say, at Epic, we value the confidentiality of your data and believe that your player data is your own. We understand how important it is for you to control how data is collected, used, and stored for your games. Epic will only access your player data for the purpose of improving or providing these services to you. We are committed to making Epic Online Services a powerful tool you can leverage to better and remain in control of your data. They also say they're going to offering end-to-end encryption to protect the game data, and they're going to be doing some other stuff for uh, separate player inventory and player data storage and some other encryption functionality and blah, blah. Treating your game's most sensitive analytics data as confidential, we view your proprietary game metrics as your data, and will not share them with Epic's game development teams or any third third parties without your authorization. So that sounds good, I guess, right? But we recently found out that Epic not only didn't care about privacy of users or whatever, they were actually taking Steam files of users that had nothing to do with their games and sending it back to their servers. So taking analytical data from Steam and sending it to themselves based on when you install the Epic Store. It looks for a file specifically built made by Steam and then sent it to themselves. So yeah, it's kind of hard to believe anything about their privacy or encryption or whatever when they do stuff like that. So, yeah. I'm, as you can tell, I'm not a big fan of Epic. And uh, especially because the CEO bashes Linux all the time. And because they hard, and like they built Fortnite. And the game itself runs on Unreal. And has support, it technically has the ability to run on Linux. But they just didn't care enough to do it. So yeah, not a fan of Epic. And that's not even counting all the weird stuff they're doing with their store. I don't know. This is a tangent, but the Epic Store has been working on doing exclusive deals. And you could say, yes, uh, console's been doing exclusives for a long time. But they pay uh, companies to build new franchises. Like Halo was a, a, exclusive to Xbox, but that didn't exist until it became a game for Xbox. And, and, and Twisted Metal is also an exclusive to Sony. You know things like that that were built for the platform. What Epic is doing is just taking games that are already going to release on all these different platforms and just forcing them to be exclusive by paying them extra. I mean, not forcing them, but forcing the users to use their store by paying extra money to these companies. Like uh, Metro Ex- Exodus was an exclusive for the Epic Store, and they announced this whole thing about how uh, the the release of Metro Exodus sold two two 2.5 times more than the amount of Metro Last Light sold when it was first released. Yet they conveniently neglected to mention the fact that Metro Exodus was a highly anticipated game, and that during Metro Last Light's first release, no one had heard of it before. And it had to build up a user base over the course of like, six years. So yeah, six years later, a sequel probably would do better when it already had a user base. So... Anyway, let's move on. Let's talk about something that's actually not annoying and is pretty good. So, Well, not pretty good. Very good. So let's let's move on. And that good news I was talking about is GOG.com Spring Sale is now live. So you can go to GOG.com and check out the, all the latest deals that is on the front page of their Spring Sale, all, like the, a lot of games that are available. Uh, they also are doing Flash deals. So every 24 hours, a couple of games... Will get a higher than usual discount. So you can go check every, like, once a day and to see what the games, like, what new games are getting better deals at the time. So this is gonna last for a a few more days. It's going to be available until um, March 28th. So I think it's based on like midnight UTC, March 28th. I think that's when they're ending it. Um, So, you know, be sure to check it out if you wanna look at any games that are on sale. Now, you also might wanna compare the sales for other games. Um, just to make sure you're getting the best deal or whatever. With that said, I have some solutions for doing that. So first of all, you can go to com slash GOG sale, and that will take you... Uh, well, first of all, if you go to GOG.com, it gives you all of the games that are on sale, including the Windows games. But if you go to Tuxysl.com slash GOG sale, it goes to a search specifically for games that are on sale and that support Linux. So... You have all the games that you will see from that link will just be Linux games, which makes it a lot more convenient and easier to find the games you might want. So if you wanted to test out other platforms to see if the games that you want are better deals in other places, you can check out tuxdus.com games on sale. And that will list you, uh, give you a links to do the same kind of filtering of games on sale that support Linux on Fanatical, Phan- uh, Fanatical, Humble Bundle or Humble Store, Steam, GOG, Itch.io, and also Feral Interactive. So all of those platforms allow you to look to see if any of the games are on sale for uh, whatever platform. So you can compare uh, in whatever game that you're interested in checking out, see which one has the best deal. So uh, I do also want to note that the GOG sale is not affiliated. Uh, Actually, only two of those links are affiliated, and that is Humble Store. And fanatical, both of those have affili- are affiliate links, but the rest are not. So, whichever one you decide to use, that's up to you. Anyway, uh, if you want, if you want to check out more and see the GOG sp- sale, remember to go to tuxdigitalcom sale for an easy access to get to Linux games that are discounted. I have a link to that in the show notes as well. Up next in the show is Valve has released a new beta for their uh, Steam client. And this new beta has a new library design as well as a new events page. So first off, the new library design is much, much needed because the previous version, I didn't even use the library. It's so annoying and like convoluted and I pretty much ignored it almost all the time. So it's really nice that they're actually trying to fix it. So, like the first homepage of this of the library, will show you like recent games, recently updated titles, as well as like a small subset of your friends' lists that are online. It also has a new search feature that allows you to finally see a decent ability of searching in the library which gives you more control over finding what game you want because this will uh, give you the ability to uh, set tags on games as well as picking a particular feature of a game, like if it has gamepad support or co-op or whatever uh, and so on, to find a game easier, kind of similar to how the website of Steam works, but in the client itself, which is kind of weird that they haven't done that before but it's really nice that you can do that now. There's also another feature that the website has that I hope this one doesn't this does get but it hasn't announced whether they're going to have it or not where you can go to someone's profile and then choose to see what games they have and also um, search their games by what you have too. So you can like compare what games you have to see if you can like co-op or multiplayer together or whatever. That's a cool feature the website has. Library should have that too. Anyway, uh, there's You can kind of do it in the current client, but it's it's clunky because it essentially just goes to the website. So whatever. They also added a new event system. So it has one place to follow all the current and upcoming events for your games. And it's also pretty cool because they are also adding some, some features to uh, being updated and how you want to follow these events. So you can do it like uh, via email, your calendar, and many more. So it's a nice update to the client, and I'm looking forward to trying it out. Uh, So if you are interested, you can download the beta or install the beta. I'll have a link to the GamingOnLinux.com website where they talk about how to get it. Um, But if you are interested, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. But I, I think this is great because, you know, Epic, not the best company for Linux gamers. But Valve, thank you very much for all the work you've done for the Linux gaming scene over the years. So anyway, moving on. Like I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, the developer for F Audio has been working on some other stuff that we're going to get to, and that is now the GameCube controllers for SDL2 games is a set of drivers that for SDL that Ethan Lee, the developer of F Audio, has been working on. We talked about this previously on an episode 55 because he was doing a crowdfunding campaign to uh, help help um, him do do this development for this and spend the time, devote the time to do it. He did reach the full goal for his budget uh, for his uh, campaign, which is awesome, And with just a couple weeks later, the drivers are now available. So uh, so I'm happy to update this, provide this update because Ethan Lee uh, provided the SDL2 library for the Game, GameCube controller adapter intended for Nintendo's Wii U switch devices. Nintendo's adapters allow for old GameCube pro, um, controllers to be used with the Wii U and switch platforms, and also because it's now working with this new driver has support for Linux systems. And this is because the old game controllers didn't have USB connections. so you had you needed an adapter and this support makes that that adapter work with Linux. So it is great. Now you' wondering you might be wondering, um, it might sound like weird why they were doing a driver for a library rather than making a whole new driver. And he says, because um, the amount of things that are using SDL's controller support is vast, and it makes the most sense to do it because you get support really quickly. So he says that uh, Unity 3D, Unreal Engine 4, Wine, RetroArch, Steam, and a bunch more all support SDL uh, controller support. So it's possible by using, building it into SDL that they would be able to uh, provide support for a lot, a lot of games, which is fantastic. Because um, he says that uh, there is a note that says that a single USB device is responsible for all four joysticks, so a large rewrite of the device driver functions was necessary to allow a single device to provide multiple joysticks. This meant that the work on it was hundreds of lines of code that, to be rewritten for the SDL or uh, within SDL 2 for supporting the adapter to bring the support for the GameCube controller to SDL's HID API code. So awesome work. Thank you very much, Ethan Lee, for doing that. That is fantastic. And I know that this is ridiculous. I don't even have one, but now that I can use it, or soon we'll be able to use it at least, I am kind of interested in getting the Donkey Kong Bongo controller And to see if I can play games with it I know that's absurd But I kind of want to do it And I might like try to play Rocket League with it Or something, I don't know That would probably never work But it might be fun to stream and see what happens Either way, I still want to get one of those now Because it works with Linux So, awesome Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the 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 commit that he posted for the SDL, as well as the link to the Indiegogo campaign. If you'd like to learn more about what he did with this, uh, with this, with the development he was doing on the campaign, I have a link to all both of those in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com/contribute, or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigitalcom LinuxEverywhere. or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigitalcom EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, private internet access, and more by going to tuxdigital.com/affiliates. If you'd like to submit some GNUs to the show, then visit the subreddit by going to thisweekinlinux.reddit.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And just a reminder, the show is live every Saturday, usually. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux GNUs each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.